Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. What I intend to do with you today, or yeah, do with you today is is to go through or start a series on the book of Amos. And Amos, I'll be honest with you, has been one of the hardest books I've ever tried to read and even harder to decipher, to understand, and then even harder to try to make um, teachable. But I think it's necessary. Sometimes we do things even though they're hard because them being hard does not excuse us from the responsibility of doing them. Amen? And so we're going to talk today, and probably the next four weeks after today, out of the book of Amos. We're just going to do a, a teaching through the book of Amos in a series that I've titled Abusing Privilege. And I've, I've titled this series Abusing Privilege for a very specific reason. Because today, because we have the privilege as believers, to belong to God. This is a privilege. But we have abused that privilege, much like they did in the Old Testament. And because we have abused that privilege, we've done it, so we've, we've taken it and we've used it to our own benefit. Those around us, and those, and those including us, are likely to face some level of judgment, if not eternal judgment. And so this is a very timely message. I told somebody a couple weeks ago, when I come back from Dallas, just expect when we start this message that you need to wear your steel-toed church shoes to, to church because I'm not going to be ugly. I'm not an ugly preacher. I think I'm a very gracious, merciful, relatively handsome young man. But... Okay, I'm not young. But my point is, I'm not sure I had a point. No, I do have a point. My point is, sometimes we need to hear the hard truth. So that in the hard truth, we might get right. Because the world is in the condition it is today, because we haven't gotten it right. I'm going to say that again. The world is in the condition it is today, because we haven't gotten it right. People say, well, if the homosexuals would just stop doing this, or the murderers would stop doing this, or the rioters would stop doing this, then our country would be a better place. Did you know the Bible does, says exactly opposite of that? The Bible says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, then he will make our country right. The problem is, none of us are righteous enough or at least we're not. many of us aren't acting righteous enough to get on our face, we decide that we're going to blame somebody else for the problems that we have the power through Christ Jesus to solve. And so we're going to talk today about these hard truths. And I'm going to do it out of a lesson today titled, A Lion Roars from Zion. In the book of Amos, the verbiage that Amos actually uses is the Lord roars from Zion, but just know that the Lord is the lion according to multiple places within the text. And so a lion roars from Zion. And so I'm going to read, start, I'm going to cover the first two chapters of Amos 
in one teaching. Which those of you guys that know me know that's going to be a pretty difficult thing for me to get accomplished because I have spent an entire sermon on one word. And so what you're going to get today is... <laughs> Dave's all, yep, yep, yep. So what you're going to get today is an overview, but it's a very pointed overview that I think covers what Amos is saying well enough to set the foundation for where he's going. Amos 1, verses 1 and 2 is the introduction. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake, he said, The Lord, the lion, roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. It says Amos, so as I read this to tell you, Amos was essentially, Amos wasn't a prophet by trade. Amos wasn't the son of a prophet. He was a sheep herder and a farmer. It probably looked much like you would expect a sheep herder and a farmer to look in those days. I used to work for a guy named Willie B, and he was a farmer. He wore overalls, had a little twenty-two Derringer in his front pocket with a couple hundred-dollar bills behind it, dirty fingernails. He was a farmer. This is how I imagine Amos looking, although probably not overalls. He was strong, worked his whole life, but God gave him a message, and he had to declare it. And his message is simple. You were given the privilege of belonging to God, and you jacked it up. You didn't do what you're supposed to be doing. And now God is angry. Probably a better word is infuriated. God is infuriated with the way that you're behaving. God was supposed to be your God. You were supposed to be His people. But instead, you take what He gave you, you take the things that He gave you and you chase after your own desires. You manufacture your own small g gods, chasing after your own idols. This is the condition of the world, right? It's interesting to me that this book, this, this prophecy was given 700 years-ish B.C., 2,700 years ago, and is just as relevant today as it was then because this is exactly what we've done. We have been given the privilege of belonging to God. We've decided to use that privilege to benefit ourselves, to talk about how good we are, to lift ourselves up in public, and to make small gods of both ourselves and the stuff that we chase after. And I will tell you, and I hope to tell you today, that there's a punishment waiting for those that do such a thing. And so he says, the lion, the Lord, roars from Zion. I don't know if any of you have ever heard a lion roar. Anybody ever heard a lion roar like in real life? I'm not talking about like TV. TV is a whole lot different. When a, when a lion roars, it has the ability to stop you dead in your tracks because it's so loud, so overwhelming, and it paralyzes you with fear. This is exactly what should happen to us when God roars at us, we should immediately stop what we are doing. 
and we should be immediately paralyzed with a reverential fear that causes us to assess where we are as opposed to where we should be. But we don't do that, and we haven't done that in the church as a whole for a long time. We've allowed the church to become an irreverential place. A place where it's okay to say whatever you want to say, do whatever you want to do, teach a prosperity gospel, tell you you're okay when you're going straight to hell. None of this is true. The the truth is found in the Word of God. And he says, because of these things, because of our lack of reverence for the things of God, there's judgment coming for us. And so let's talk. i got four points I'm going to make today. Amos 1, 3 through 2, 16. I'm not going to read the whole text. Matter of fact, I'm going to highlight portions of the text that bring the text more clarity. Or to an easier clarity. I don't know that I have the ability to make it more clear. Number one. Point one. The lion roars against the nations. The lion roars against the nations. I would encourage you, if you don't, take notes. So you can go home and study. I find it interesting that the vast majority, and when I say the vast majority, 90% or more of the people that hear me preach, the same 90% that will come up to the podium and tell me after service, that was one of the better sermons I've ever heard, whether that's true or not, won't remember what I preached about in two weeks. That's why I tell you to take notes. What's interesting is the people that would come to the podium and critique my preaching ain't going to remember what I preached in two weeks either. (laughs) Right, Pastor Rick? Number one, the lion roars against the nation. The Lord judges the nations. Those that don't belong to Him is what I mean. For what they should know. Let me read you something out of Romans chapter 1. Even if you're not a believer... I typically preach to the believers in the church because I believe that the church, church's primary obligation, the church house's primary obligation is to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. But I also recognize that from time to time there are people that don't know God that come into the church and we are blessed to have you but expect to hear the truth here. And in a way that's not going to sound particularly good to your secular ear. But whether you belong to God or don't, He has a word for those who don't. Those who sh- He's saying that even though you don't believe in God, you should know. In Romans 1, 18-20, it reads like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. It doesn't get much more pointed than that. Even if you're not a believer, you should be able to look around you and see the handiwork of God and acknowledge that something bigger than you created that. Just the innate nature of who you are should be able to look at creation and say, this possibly could not have happened by accident. 
I'll tell you why we believe those lies, because we've been, we've been fed those lies small pieces at a time, generationally. This isn't something that somebody come up with and the whole world says, you know what, he's right. One lie told over generations becomes the truth to the, to the person that hears the lie. But it's still a lie. But if you take away all of that, step outside and watch the grass grow, watch the sun set on the ocean, which I'm looking forward to doing in Panama City in September. If you go to the Rockies and see the Rockies and the sunset there or the snow fall or the flowers and how beautifully they're dressed and the birds, how wonderfully they're taken care of, how the eye sees and the finger feels, even though the finger and the eye are essentially all protein. Just those things ought to show you that God exists. God has made himself evident in creation. So even those that have never heard the gospel can still believe that there's a God. Because those, if you can just say there is a God, you will seek after that God. And if you seek after that God, I am convinced, because everyone is accountable to the name of Jesus, that God will reveal Jesus to you. But you have to be willing to first acknowledge the innate understanding in you that there is a God. That's why they can God, that's why God is just to judge the unbeliever. It continues on in 19 or 8. Yeah, 19. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We, pre-salvation, are without excuse. And so Amos begins to talk. And he says, you have a moral code in you. You're responsible for what you do know. And what do you know? You know that God exists. Because God proved to you he exists. And he has placed a moral code in you. Do you know that there's a moral code written in the heart of every man when he's born? People are like, wait a minute, what? Did anybody ever have to tell you murdering was wrong? Rape was wrong. Adultery was wrong. Theft was wrong. You knew that innately. You know why? Because you have a moral code in you given to you by a moral code giver, which happens to be one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God. And because you have a moral code, and because God has revealed himself to you, if you're an unbeliever, then there's punishment and justice when you are walking in rebellion. And he talks about this in his book, starting in verse 3. He talks about the sins of the nations. There are six nations here. There are Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. These are cities, I call, them, I call them the nations, because they are the people that don't belong to God. They're the nations that are surrounding Israel and Judah. And this is who he's talking to. They're, each one of them have their own sin, but they can best be understood, most simply understood, as three sins committed by two cities each. 
So three groups of sins committed by two cities. Here's the three sins. Sin one, cruelty in general. Sin two, cruelty to those who are, they are in relationship with. And sin three, cruelty against the hopeless. Let's cover them. I'm not telling you about the sins of people 2,700 years ago because I think you should know what people that have been dead for 2,700 years ago did. I'm telling you about the sin of people from 2,700 years ago because they're the same sins we're committing today. Damascus and Gaza are guilty of cruelty in general. In verse 3 it says that Damascus threshed Gilead. What that means is when they thresh corn or they thresh wheat, there's a wooden sled and they run it around on the ground or they run it around on another hard surface. And on that cart, that wooden cart, so as not to deteriorate the cart, they put metal sleds. And they let this metal sled roll around and around and around on the corn until it pulverizes it and crushes it into nothing. This is what Damascus did to communities. They crushed them completely. They went beyond what was necessary in their cruelty. We live in a cruel world, guys. A world that seems to be cruel for no other reason than for the sake of cruelty. I watched the other day on TV is, I'm going to call them thugs because I don't know what else to call them, stole a dog out of a pet shelter, out of one of the animal shelters. And during one of the riots was just slinging it around by its leash and its neck until it was dead. Because they thought it was fun and funny. This is unnecessary cruelty. Gaza accused of the same thing by selling entire communities into slavery. Tyre and Edom. Where the first two were cruelty in general. Tyre and Edom were cruel to those that they should have been in relationship with people that they were in covenant with, people that they were brothers to. This is a greater sin than just being cruel. When I look at you and say, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're dealing with, you have my hand of friendship and brotherhood. I will stand beside you and I will not go. And then I turn around because now you have made yourself open and exposed to me because you trust me and use that trust to exploit you. That's a greater sin of cruelty than just regular cruelty. But this is exactly what they did. They said, Tyre also sold entire populations, but did so while ignoring their covenant with them. They made a covenant to stand beside them and then use that to sell that whole population into slavery. Edom pursued his brother and killed him, putting aside mercy. Let me... Let me read this verse to you in 11 to show you the full extent of the horribleness that Edom committed. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and just so you and for four, just so you know, that doesn't mean, because you'll see that at the beginning of each one of these prophecies, each one of these declarations of sin. It doesn't mean for three sins or for four sins. It's a poetic way of saying for immeasurable and incalculable number of cruelties. So he's saying for an incalculable number of sins and cruelties, I will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword. 
while he stifled his compassion. Which means he didn't have mercy on him. Because what is compassion? Compassion is mercy in action. Seeing a need, knowing you can meet it and needing it is compassion. He ain't, his anger tore continually, which means he couldn't, he couldn't be settled to be peaceful. And he maintained his fury forever against his own brother. Ammon and Moab were the first two cruelty in general, cruelty to those in relationship. The third, cruelty against the hopeless. Amon killed the pregnant and helpless infants, according to verse 13. It says to enlarge their borders. I told you I'm not preaching about your sins from 2,700 years ago for no reason, but to show we're doing the same thing today. We're killing our infants to enlarge our own borders. How many babies are murdered every year in abortion clinics because it's inconvenient to raise them? Because it's going to somehow inhibit my prosperity. They did this to other nations. We do it to ourselves. And then set up and help pay for institutions that do it to others. And we wonder why God's judgment is on our land. All for the sake of convenience. You know what this does? This destroys their future. It, it will destroy our future. I saw a cartoon one day. It's not funny, really, but it, was, it wasn't intended to be. It was a more political satire cartoon. This guy's yelling up at the sky. He says, we have cancer, God. Why didn't you send us a cure for cancer? And the guy standing next to him says, he did, and you killed it. What problems do we have in the world today if we had not determined our own prosperity to be more important than the righteousness of God? So that's a crime against the future. Moab, burn the bones of the king. Doesn't seem like that big a deal. Except that they, their anger for their past was so vile that they dug up bones and burnt them and crushed them and we see the same thing in america today we're tearing down statues we're tearing down memorials in the and then we rename it by saying we're doing it for the sake of justice let me tell you what happens when you tear down memorials whether you agree with them or not you're burying your own history, both good and bad. Keep your bad history so that you know not to repeat bad history. Keep your good history for the same reasons the Israel set, set up monuments so that they can glorify God in their good history. So where they killed their babies and destroyed their future, they burned the, the bones of the king to destroy their past. These are crimes against the helpless and generations after ours are going to suffer for it our generation is suffering for it I, 
I fear for the generation my grandkids have to grow up in. And I pray that God brings us home first. And these are their sins. And so Amos declares God's punishment on them. I'm not going to go through all the punishments except to say this. Every one of them has this same verbiage. I will send fire upon your citadels. I will send fire upon your citadels. A citadel is the strongest point in the fortress. And so essentially he says, listen, I'm going to destroy you so completely that even your strongest fortification won't be able to stand against my vengeance. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? God's not talking to some random dude out here. God's talking to us. Because whether we belong to God or not, we're still committing these crimes against a holy God. If you're visiting with us today, you're all, man, he's all a fire brimstone preacher. Not all the time, but sometimes. But most of the time. <laughs> because I think it's important. And I'll be honest with you, because I'm a little bit self-centered. Because I don't want to answer to God for not telling you the truth. God's message today to us is clear. There is no sin, no sinner, that won't get the full punishment of God that they deserve. Because he's just. Number two, the lion roars against his own. We were just talking about people don't even belong to him. Now he starts talking to the people that do belong to him, and this is what he says. Well, let me first tell you, he has a right to roar against his own. Because he's not a, a God that shows favoritism, according to the word of God. And just because you belong to him doesn't mean you're not accountable to him. You're not, some, you're not God's pet. We're not God's pet. Able to do whatever we want that suits our fancy. We're held to a higher standard even than the unbeliever. And so we're obligated to righteousness. Where I told you a moment ago that God roars, the lion roars against the nations for what they do know or can know. He roars against his people for what they do know. For the reveal, for his reveal, he judges them according to their revelation. I had a guy tell me one time, he says, he said, I'm only accountable for the things I, I know. That's not true. If somebody's ever told you that, they lied to you. If you're a believer, you're accountable for everything you can know, but determined not to find out. That's why God gave you his word, so that you can know. The second I put my hand on this Bible, I was responsible to everything in this Bible. Pastor Jim, that's not fair. Your salvation isn't fair. You rebelled against the cosmic, cosmically rebelled against the divine God. You're talking about fair? Fair is sending us all to hell regardless. But 
But he has this to say against the people. Against Judah first. In verse 2-4, he says this. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, which means an incalculable number, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and did not keep his statutes. So essentially they dismissed the word of God, the will of God, the revelation of God. Did you know the Old Testament had, folks had a revelation from God too? It was called the law. So he's going to punish them because they didn't keep the law. They didn't keep the statutes. They didn't do what they were supposed to be doing. And when they didn't do what they were supposed to be doing, they're showing that God's not really that significant. And then it says because they avoided the Bible, or their Bible at the time, they avoided God. And they walked away from Him, is what the verse says. You know what being led astray means? That means walking away from God. Let me tell you the dangers of walking away from God, except even greater than just the fact that you've just walked away from God. The greatest danger about walking away from God is there is a vacuum in the human soul. Once God is placed there, if you walk away from God and God is removed from there, this vacuum will not exist empty. It will be filled with something else. It will be filled with another God, small g God. And when that happens, you're led astray. This is the reason why there's so much idolatry in the world. Because we haven't paid attention to the revealed will of God. We haven't kept the statutes of God. We've allowed ourselves to be led astray. And in being led astray, the vacuum that should contain the one and only God now contains whatever God we determine to put there. It might be your job, might be your wife, might even be your church, your service to the church. Let me tell you, if it's not God, it's an, it's an idol if you're following it to a greater degree than the God that you should be serving. These are the sins of Judah. And you know what the judgment is? Fire. And then he gives the sins of Israel. Having rejected the word, having rejected God, God's people reject godliness. You see the continuum there? I reject, I reject the Bible. Because I reject the Bible, I reject God's will. Because I reject God's will, I reject God. Because I reject God, I reject, I reject God's righteousness. And in that, all sin is culpable. Or all sin is available. He lists them. Not in this way, but I'm going to list them this way to make it easier. Economic oppression. They cared so little for each other that they would sell each other for the price of a pair of shoes. You guys ever been sold out by somebody for less than you thought you were worth? Now let me hurt your feelings. You ever sold out somebody for less than they should have been worth to you? I have. For denying justice to the oppressed. For immorality. The scripture says, it uses this verbiage, same woman combined with profaning God's name and beside the altar. 
all of this in verse 6 through 8 suggests that they laid with temple prostitutes. The father and the son laid with temple prostitutes. The father and son are people that belong to God. Went to a godless temple. Worshipped a false god. And both slept with the same woman, whether at the same time or not. On stretched out garments. In front of the altar. you imagine such a thing? Could you imagine the blasphemy, the spitting in God's face? The garment thing that they stretched out shows that they didn't care about the, the poor amongst them either because that same word is the word that's used in Exodus where it talks about if you take a garment from someone to help pay a debt or to to lend them money, you would, they would exchange their garment, that you were supposed to give that garment back to them before nightfall so that they wouldn't be cold. So they not only exploited their neighbor, but they used that explo- exploitation to lay out in front of a false god and have sex in, a, in an idol's temple. These aren't even the people, the nations. These are the people of God. And we've all done it. Not that specifically. But can I tell you, the God that watched them have sex in the temple is the same God that watches believers today have sex with somebody that isn't their husband or their wife. Stretched out in garments that he provided for them. I tell you, he roars, but he has a right to. I'm not going to read it. But verse 9 through 12 talks about how God is perfectly compassionate. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. He essentially says this. He said, "He he took care of them. He destroyed their enemies, delivered them from captivity, gave them an inheritance, and sent messengers to them so he could still talk with them. And his people rejected him. God's been good to me. And we still reject him. He's provided for me. He's even talked to me. And we rejected him. And so because of that, he has to be perfectly just. He can't ignore sin. And so he has to judge it. And he starts with his people. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for for, for them who do not obey the gospel of God? And so he's saying, listen, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. The judgment is on us first. You know why the judgment is on the house of God first? Because the house of God was given so that we might be a light to the world. We're supposed to be the hands and feet of of Christ on this earth. People don't like this verbiage, but it's true. 
the local church is the hope of the world because we spread the hope of the world. And when we live in a way like this, without humility, worshiping other gods, treating other people immoral, breaking covenants, doing all this stuff, because we do the stuff the nations do too. What we're saying is we're the church and this is what our God looks like. You don't think we deserve judgment? Yeah, we deserve judgment. We deserve judgment. And for those who aren't paying attention, judgment's coming. Amos 2, 4, 16 says it. 14 through 16. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power. Nor the mighty man save his life, but he who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape. Nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. He's saying there's no strength, speed, weapon, or warrior that can save you from the justice of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You picking up what I'm laying down? The words of Amos then are the words we should be paying attention to today. The lion roars at the nations. The lion roars at his own people because he has a right to judge us. But even though he has a right to, there's a last point that I think is more beautiful than any other thing on earth or in the heavens. The lion has offered up a lamb. The Bible tells us that we don't have to live in the sin that we live in. That there's a way to defeat the enemy in our life. And that is Christ Jesus. It's by the shedding of His blood that there is a remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Jesus Christ shed His blood on the cross so that we can have the hope of forgiveness so that we might ultimately be justified, which means that we are made guiltless by His death, Romans 5.18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, that one transgression being in Adam, even so, though one act of righteousness, which is the work of Christ, there resulted justification, which means no guiltiness of life for all men. And so it's saying, even though sin came in with one cat, righteousness was made available in Christ Jesus. Because He shed His blood so that we might have the remission of sin, so that our sin might not be covered over, but washed completely away, chiseled out of us. And all we have to do is this this one simple thing. Believe the Word of God. And the Word of God says, if you want to procure that promise, you have to believe in your heart that God, or speak with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Notice the Bible doesn't say, believe Jesus Christ, or declare Jesus Christ as Savior. 
Because he's not your Savior until he's your Lord. Until you're willing to set everything we've just talked about aside and follow him intentionally and with supreme focus. So I ask you, what do you do with the truth? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the lion has offered up a lamb. I don't know where you are today, whether you're a nation, one of the nations, whether you're one of God's people, or whether you're one of God's people that have delved in the nations. Quite honestly, it doesn't matter to me. Because all of it puts you outside the will and standing of God. And if you want to get back right, there's only one thing you have to do. Believe, speak, declare with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you shall be saved. If there's anybody in this place today, and that's you, I'm not going to waste your time or mine. If there's anybody in this place at all, and that's you, I want you to stand. I don't want to embarrass you, but we are a family here with a culture of family. And we want to pray with you, support you, and love you. If that's you, would you please stand? Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you love us. God, that you have declared our sin. But just as loudly, perhaps even more loudly, you've declared your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the solution for our sin. And for those that stood up and those that wanted to but that didn't, for anybody that has anything standing in between them, I pray this prayer. God, forgive us. God, we repent. We declare you Lord. We declare Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, to do what you've called us to do, to follow him all the days of our lives, to live according to your precepts, to follow your will, to turn away from our sin, but not just turn away from our sin, but turn towards your Son, Jesus, so that we can see the example that we're following. God, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you made this promise to us, that if we are faithful to ask for forgiveness, that you're faithful to give it to us. And so we worship you, we praise you, we thank you in advance for the magnificent work that you're doing in us and through us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time, for your word, and for the people here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.